Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your church, uh, our family. Uh, Thank you so much for the gift of your word. And I pray right now, empower us as a family, as a community, to hear from your word, to hear what you would say to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, your son. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor here at Christ Community, and I'm excited uh, to dive into Scripture with you this morning, and I'm also excited that it's a beautiful day still. We still have got some fall left, which is great. There's a few cold days last week that made me worry. Uh, If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know we are in a series on uh, jolting, startling statements of Jesus. We're continuing in that series this morning. And uh, I want to start just by reading the text that we're going to be talking about today. So our text for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. So the flip to the New Testament, first book there is Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. This is God's word. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take And eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, these words that I just read, they may be familiar to you, somewhat familiar to you, uh, if you've been part of a church for a while. Uh, these, this, this is the text, uh, this meal in the text is, is called the Lord's Supper, or communion, or the Eucharist. Maybe you've heard one of those uh, terms before. And uh, most of you here, maybe not all of you, but most of you have, have probably participated in a communion service at, at a church somewhere, whether here or somewhere else. So if you're in that camp, you, you, we read these words, and we prob- they probably don't shock us uh, as we hear them. We, we've heard them before. Uh, but that may be because we haven't taken the time to truly reflect on what Jesus is saying here. And for centuries of Christian history, uh, the interpretation of the text I just read has led to tremendous division in the Christian church, sometimes violent division, which is to our shame. And also, in early Christianity, Christians were often accused of cannibalism by their pagan neighbors, probably because of texts like this, when you read Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, eat it and drink it. Now, the irony in in that is that despite the the confusion that the church has had about how to read these texts, uh, the last thing this was meant to do was divide the church. It was supposed to unite it, this this communion meal that we're talking about. It was supposed to unite us, and it was supposed to uh, give us a tangible way of accepting and understanding Jesus' sacrifice for us. It's often an abstract idea that Jesus died for our sins. And the meal, communion, gives us a tangible way to live that out and express it. Because when we really understand Jesus in this text, which we're going to try to do this morning, if we really understand what he's saying about the Lord's Supper, then we would begin to see that through this meal that we call communion, Jesus is describing, he is interpreting the very purpose of his life and his death. He is describing what this meal is supposed to do for us as Christians. And he asks us to repeat this meal over and over and over again in in the context of worship. 
because of what this meal does to us. We're going to talk more about that. So here's where we're going this morning. Now, the first thing we're going to cover is what, what was this meal in Jesus' time? So what this meal was, that's point one. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. And then we're going to talk about, okay, what, did the, what does this meal do for us? And then finally, what does this meal do to us? So what the meal was, what this meal does for us, what this meal does to us. So let's, let's dive in. What, what was this meal? In Jesus' time, in Matthew 26, what, what's being described here? Well, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the end of his life. We've come near the end of, the, of this gospel story, and Jesus knows at this point that in just a few hours, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be executed. And yet, even though he knows that, knowing all of that, uh, that this is literally his last night with the disciples, uh, Jesus prepares a meal with them. Why, now, why does he do that? Well, this particular night was a holiday for the Jews called Passover. And we know that from verses 17 and 18 in chapter 26. We know explicitly that this meal that Jesus is preparing, this meal that he is talking about and that we're going to be looking at this morning was a Passover meal. A Passover meal. And the Passover, if you're familiar with it, was an event in Israel's history. And when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, right, Moses came and confronted Pharaoh and God performed 10 plagues to free Israel from Egypt, right? You've seen the Disney movie. I think you know what I'm talking about. So there's these 10 plagues. The last plague, the 10th plague, was called the plague of the firstborn son. And God told Moses for this plague, he said, tell the people, tonight you must sacrifice a lamb without blemish, your best lamb, in other words. And you must put its blood on your doorposts of your house. And you must gather your family inside of that house because tonight I am sending an angel of judgment throughout the land. And any house not covered by blood will lose their firstborn son. And so the Israelites painted their doorposts with this blood. They, their families hid inside, were protected inside. And the angel of judgment, seeing the blood, would pass over that home, which is where we get the name, the Passover. So Israel prepared this sacrifice in the Old Testament and this meal on the night before their rescue from Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 12, verse 14, the book of Exodus is where the story of the um, the ten plagues is told, God tells Israel concerning this meal, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, and throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So this Passover meal was a memorial meal that every generation of Jews celebrated then all the way to this day, still celebrated today. And in Jesus' time, there was a very specific ritual, a very specific way that you would celebrate this meal. And part of that ritual was there always had to be one person, <clears throat> excuse me, who presided over the meal. Always had to be one person. Because the Passover wasn't just food that you ate. It was teaching. Every part of the meal had a purpose, had a point. And someone needed to be there to explain why these Different parts of the meal were there. So it's not surprising that Jesus stands up in our story and is the one presiding. 
After all, he is a rabbi, he's a religious teacher, he's, and so we see him as the one speaking. We know he's the presider here. But instead of describing what the meal was for Israel, Jesus begins to describe what the meal does for us as Christians. And he radically changes the meaning of the Passover meal for his disciples and for us today. So that brings us to our second question. We know it's a Passover meal. What does Jesus say this meal does for us? What does it do for us? And we begin to understand the answer to that question when we see how Jesus, as the presider, begins to deviate from the Passover script that he's supposed to follow. Because as Jesus lifts the bread and blesses it, uh, the disciples are expecting him to say something like this. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. So the disciples are expecting to hear that, but instead what they hear is, take and eat. This is my body. Drink. This is my blood. And the disciples in that moment have got to be like, what? What is he saying? And uh, this is the best analogy I could come up with, so if it's not very good, forgive me. But imagine today, if you were at a wedding reception. And at a wedding reception, there's there's lots of ritual involved at a wedding reception, right? Lots of things that everybody tends to do. And uh, one of those is the, the father of the bride giving a toast. Father of the bride usually gives a toast at a wedding reception. And uh, because it's, ritual, it's ritualized and symbolic, we kind of know what's coming generally when that, the father of the bride stands up. We know he's got to say goodbye to his daughter and that he's got to pretend to like his son-in-law. We know that's coming. <laughs> so imagine you're at this reception and you see the father of the bride stand up and you, you kind of tune out a little bit because you, you think you know what's coming. But the father stands up and he says this, blessings on this new marriage. I'm so excited about this, this new marriage. I'm so excited, in fact, that I, I'm going to seal it with my blood, which is represented by this champagne glass, which you all have. So take it and let's, let's drink together to this new marriage. I mean, that would shock you, right? And you probably would look at the champagne glass and put it down. Um, it's not a very appetizing image. But it shocks you, right? The, the, there's a ritual and, and Jesus breaks it in this text. He is totally redefining this moment, redefining it. He is saying, this was the bread of our affliction. Now it is the bread of my affliction. This was a a cup of blessing. It is now a cup of my blood. Jesus, with these few words, is reinterpreting the entire Bible, all of redemptive history around himself. He is saying, the Passover meal, the Passover in general, was always about me. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament for the forgiveness of sins. Every rescue from oppression by God. Every judgment, every word from God's lips anticipated, pointed to, longed for this moment, this meal with me. Jesus says, my body and my blood are saving you. Not from Pharaoh, but from sin itself. Not simply from slavery, but from death itself. Jesus explicitly says this is the blood of a covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this word for is ambiguous in English. We use the word for, it can mean a lot of different things. 
In the Greek, however, this word for, poured out for many, has a nuance that's better translated on behalf of you, instead of you. Blood poured out on your behalf, in your stead. This is language of sacrifice and of substitution. Jesus says, my blood for your blood, my body for your body, my death for your death, my life for your life, my righteousness for your sin, that you might be passed over again. And just like the Israelites of old, Jesus is saying, it is not your religion that saves you. It is not your religion that cleanses you. It is the blood of the sacrifice. It is the blood of the sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I am that ultimate sacrifice. The only one who can save you from your sin and the consequences of your sin. And the meaning of Jesus' words are only reinforced by the absence in this story of the main course for the Passover meal. So far in this text, Jesus has taught, we've talked about bread, we've talked about wine, but where's the lamb? The Passover is all about the lamb. The whole point is the lamb. God said, you sacrifice a lamb, you cook a lamb, you eat a lamb, you put the blood of the lamb on your house. Where is the lamb in this story? Jesus is the lamb. On the night of the Passover in Egypt, regardless of whether you were a Jew or an Egyptian, regardless of your race, your creed, your politics, you either on that night lost a lamb or you lost a son. On this night, in in first century Palestine with Jesus, the whole world watches as the true meaning of that Passover event is revealed. On this night with Jesus... The world gains a lamb, and God loses a son. He is the shelter that we hide in. He is the doorpost covered in blood that protects us. He is the one in faith who shields us from the judgment we deserve. And the Bible calls, I'm sorry, and just like Israel, uh, which became a nation on the night of the Passover, Right after this happens, this 10th plague, Israel becomes a nation for the first time and escapes Egypt. And just like that, on this new Passover, a nation is born that's unlike any other. It's not defined by geography. It's not defined by race. It's not defined by politics, but by faith in a body broken and faith in blood shed on our behalf. And the Bible calls this nation the church. And the Passover turned a bunch of slaves in the Old Testament into the most influential nation on earth, Israel. This new Passover takes a bunch of random people who wouldn't otherwise know each other, may not even be friends with each other, if not for this shared meal. It makes us a family together, a family called and empowered to change the world. That's what this Passover does. This meal teaches us that when Jesus died, he died for us. He died for our salvation together. That's what this meal does for us. And when you understand that, when you understand what this meal is pointing to, what Jesus is doing, you begin to look at his instruction to do this over and over again. It's not in this text, but it's in others. To do this over and over again in remembrance of me. 
you, you have to ask the question, why does Jesus, unlike any other religious founder in the history of the world, why does Jesus command his followers to commemorate his death forever? His death. I mean, Jesus does not say, do this in remembrance of my miraculous birth. And he doesn't say, do this in remembrance of my tremendous deeds in life. Or do this in remembrance of my brilliant teaching that changes the world. Or, or even do this in remembrance of my resurrection from the grave. He doesn't say any of that. He says, do this over and over. In remembrance of my crucifixion. In remembrance of my shameful execution in remembrance of my humiliating death. Do this in remembrance of me. Why does he say that? Well, I think it's because he invites us to take this meal together because of what it does to us. Remembering his death and this meal, what does it do to us? Why do we do this over and over again? And that brings us to our last question. What does this meal do to us when we take it as Christians? Well, first, this meal, when we participate in it together, it nourishes us. And let me explain what I mean by that. It nourishes us. It gives us life. And in the book of John, chapter 6, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, this is a title for Jesus, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, what does that mean? Well, you're probably aware, as I, and I mentioned it before, that, that texts like this have caused a tremendous amount of division in the Christian church in terms of how they've been interpreted. And we need to touch on this debate just a moment if we're going to understand how this meal nourishes us as Christians. So with that in mind, uh, you can really break this whole discussion down about Lord's Supper into two categories. There's, there's the high view, which is most notably represented by the Catholic Church, and in that view, you take Jesus as literally as possible when you read these texts. The bread literally becomes Jesus' body, and the wine literally becomes Jesus' blood. And we are nourished by taking it because it's literally saving us. It's, it's part of our salvation process. Now, for those of you who may come from a Catholic background, um, that's why only the priest touches the bread and the wine, right? Because they are holy, and we aren't. Now, on the other side is more the lower views, quote-unquote, the lower views of the Lord's Supper. And these are represented uh, by people like uh, Martin Luther, who taught that uh, a spiritual presence comes underneath or with the elements of the Lord's Supper in, in a mystical way, or to John Calvin, who taught that you, a spiritual blessing comes with eating the Lord's Supper, to Zwingli, who taught this is a symbolic event that the Spirit uses to bless uh, and to shape Christians. Now, I bring that up for, to say this. Our church and our denomination, we work hard to cultivate an ethos that I think is quite beautiful, and it's really captured in this statement. Um, in the essentials of the faith, unity. In the non-essentials, freedom. And in all things with each other, charity. So, just so you know, specifically, we believe as a church that these, these latter three interpretations, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, are defensible positions that we can differ on as a body and still be a family of Christians together. Now, we do reject the Catholic view, which hopefully doesn't shock you, uh, as you had to know this was not a Catholic church when you saw what I was wearing today, when you walked in. 
<laughs> when Jesus said, this is my body and blood, and, and here's where we land on this. We reject it for two, for two reasons. One, the elements don't save you. Two, when Jesus, um, <clears throat> this, he couldn't have meant this literally because he can't say, this is my body while he's holding it with his body. And this is my blood while the blood is, he's still pumping blood in his body. Uh, and it had to be representational in that moment. Um, but we get so lost, here's, here's the point, we get so lost in, in that debate, many of us have, and the Christian church has for centuries. We get so lost about what, what, what the bread and wine are that we forget what Jesus says to do with them. He says, eat and drink. Now, why is that important? Well, Jesus is saying, in a representational way, in a symbolic way, through these elements of the supper, that unless you internalize his death on the cross, unless you believe that it saves you, and unless that knowledge sustains you and nourishes you, then the cross has no power for you. You have to choose it. You must pick it up and eat it. You must symbolically put the blood to your lips and drink it, and it will give you life. While we participate in communion, in other words, we're learning to tangibly appropriate the blessings of the cross to our lives. We must pick up the cross and carry it. We must consume it. We must let it define us. Let, us be, let it become a part of who we are. Just like when we eat food, the elements of that food break down and become the building blocks of our cells. And they feed our muscles and they give us life. The same idea. That's why at Christ's community, you pick up the bread. And you dip it. Because only you can accept this invitation from God. No one can do this for you. You must do it. And when you do it, in faith, it nourishes you. Because every time we eat and drink, we remember that the God of the universe, the creator himself, became spiritual food for you. Everything that food represents, something that you can't live without, something that brings tremendous joy to your life, something that brings family and friends together like nothing else, all of that is fulfilled by God in this meal. He's the true food that we need. And he could have let us starve, but he loved us too much. And that knowledge, that truth, nourishes more than any food ever could. So what does this meal do to us? <clears throat> it nourishes us in the knowledge that we are loved. We are infinitely loved. But it also, at the same time, humbles us. It nourishes us and it humbles us. Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to examine ourselves when we eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper. And this means at least two things. It means at least two things. First, it means that if you have not accepted Jesus... If you do not believe in his sacrificial death and his atoning blood, if you don't think he is the savior of the world, if you look at communion and you think this is just another meal like any other, then do not eat it. Do not eat it. Examine yourself. What do you believe? In whom do you ultimately trust? Because if it is not Jesus, then do not participate in communion because you're poisoning yourself. And you can think of it this way. If you don't if you don't like tomatoes and you don't like mozzarella cheese and you don't like ground beef and you don't like carbohydrates, you, then you aren't going to like lasagna very much, which is a combination of all those things. 
if you don't believe in the divinity of Jesus, uh, if you don't believe in his sacrificial death, if you disregard his resurrection and lordship, it doesn't mean anything to you, then you aren't going to like communion, which is the combination of all those things. Don't eat it. If you aren't a Christian, don't take communion, but take Christ first. Take Christ first. Who do you think he is? Is he who he says he is? Think on questions like that. Start there. But examining ourselves means something else too. It means that if you have accepted Jesus, you are a Christian, then you must approach this supper with humility. Because when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you remember that the only man who did not deserve any ill treatment from anyone received all ill treatment from everyone because of us. His body was broken, and we broke it, and his blood was shed, and we spilled it. Our animosity, our sin, our rebellion, our hatred of God did these things. And when we remember how desperate we were, how starving we are for God's love and approval, we cultivate a hunger for Jesus. This meal helps us to remember our daily need of him, his direction, his love, his forgiveness, his guidance, his wisdom, without which we would starve to death. So when you look at the bread dipped in wine, and when, you be, when you've humbled yourself enough to accept it, to know that you need it, the sacrifice, you begin to see that hidden in this meal are the, are the biggest answers that life has, the biggest questions and answers to them that life has to offer. Questions like, am I forgiven? Yes. Questions like, am I accepted more than you could ever understand? Does God care about my pain? He entered your pain. Will God ever abandon me? No. Is he trustworthy? He was broken for you. And these answers and the good news itself, right, the gospel itself is wrapped up in this meal. But only when you have the humility to admit your need for it and accept it. This meal nourishes us and it humbles us. But lastly, it it unifies us. And this is the one we often miss. It unifies us. We tend to think of communion as a means to getting closer to God as individuals. And that is true. It does do that. But that's not all that it does. It also pulls the whole church closer together as a family when we do this. Jews in Jesus' day, um, they would celebrate the Passover with their family. Uh, Much like today, most of our holidays are spent with family. So it's interesting that when Jesus institutes his Passover, this Christian Passover, he does not do it with his mother Mary. He does not do it with his brothers. He does not do it with his sisters. Who does he do it with? does it with his disciples. And what, is, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is making a family with this supper. A family. Those who follow him, those who trust him, those who eat this meal with him are now his family. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And every family, right, is joined by shared blood. It's no different in the church. We're sh- shared blood of Christ. We're a family. And nothing captures the unity and beauty of the church family like a shared meal. Every culture throughout history understands that uh, uh, food brings people together like nothing else can. And the church is no different. This This is a family affair that we're invited to. 
This unifies us. And when Jesus calls this meal a covenant in Matthew, this meal is a covenant, he means that, yes, on the one hand, he promises to never abandon you as an individual. But on the other hand, he's also calling us to covenant together, to never abandon each other, to never treat our church like a place, like a consumer, to treat it like if my needs aren't being met here, then I'm leaving. We're supposed to be a family through thick and thin together. We are redefined as a people. I said earlier that if you aren't a Christian, the Lord's Supper teaches you to take Christ first. If you are a Christian, the Lord's Supper teaches you that if you love Jesus and you want him, you must love his church. You don't get one without the other. You've got to be committed to this family to truly understand the meaning of communion, which is related to our word community which means a gathered people. And this is why at Christ's community, we invite you to come and take communion in groups of five to ten people, if you're familiar with that, if you remember us doing that. We realize that is not the most efficient way to serve the Lord's communion in a, in a space like this. We get that. And we realize that it leads to awkward moments and questions like, wait, wasn't I in line first, or was she in line first, or... You know, I, did I take the pe- big piece of bread? Do I look like a jerk for doing that? Or, or my personal favorite, the, oh, I've put the bread in my mouth and no one else did, so now I'm awkwardly holding it in my mouth. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But that's what a, but what's a family meal without some awkward moments, right? <laughs> that's how you know you're with family. Um, we live in the chaos just a little bit because we are a family. And families don't need to feel awkward around each other. And we have to practice that. So when you take the bread and the juice, when you come up together and receive Christ's meal, know that it nourishes you. And it humbles you. And that it brings you closer to God. But don't forget that you eat from one loaf with your family as one body. This meal is a tremendous gift to you but so is the community of people around you that it creates. And we need them both. We're going to eat this meal together in just a few minutes, but before we do, we're going to take some time to worship God and reflect on what we've heard this morning about communion. We're going to hear Randy and his team are going to lead us in worship, and then I'll come back up and invite us into communion. So in the meantime, I want us to reflect on, on, on these things that we've heard. Where does your faith need nourishment today? Where does your faith need nourishment today? Where do you need humility today? What are you relying on instead of God to meet your needs? Where do you need humility today? Where do you need reconciliation with a family member today? In here. As I I pray and as we worship together, reflect on these questions. And then come to the Lord's table where all who are in the family of Jesus are welcome. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the knowledge that to save us required the death of your most precious son. That his body had to be broken and his blood had to be shed for us. And yet, we are in awe of the love that would do that for us anyway. And Lord, what what can we not trust you with in light of that? What can we not give to you in light of love and sacrifice like that? Empower us to live that way, to live in light of this Lord's Supper and prepare our hearts 
in these next few minutes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.